Hi, and welcome to episode 40 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. I can't believe we've done 40 episodes of this Oscar podcast. Pretty amazing. 40 episodes, and this is the 60th Academy Awards that we'll be covering today. The 60th Academy Awards um, for the film year 1987, and the awards took place in 1988. And it was uh, the year that The Last Emperor won, you know, kind of surprised everybody and won. Um, Well, it didn't really surprise everybody since Bernardo Bertolucci had won the DGA. Its only main competition really was broadcast news. And um, but broadcast news failed to get a director nomination, which did not have the same effect that Ben Affleck not getting one for Argo had. It it um, <laughs> it it simply made the film look like a failure, and of course made it really easy for um, for the Last Emperor to win. And it would have been hard for it not to win anyway, because it it is such a huge accomplishment, such a glorious epic. Uh, you know, it was hard. And it's for one voters. of those. One of those movies, I think, that is, is almost the default choice because it was probably one of only two or three five-star movies that year. The other would have been in broadcast news. And then everything else, you, is there, there's a really street, a steep drop-off in quality for the other choices. There would, there's almost nothing else to, that could have won Best Picture that would have made any sense. Maybe Empire of the Sun, but that right. wasn't going to happen because of the way they repeatedly like to snub and screw Spielberg. Strangely, um, the films that were in the top five were kind of an odd mix, but they were really strong box office contenders. Um, Broadcast News, Moonstruck, and Fatal Attraction, all led by women. Female performances were in the top 20 of the box office heading into the Oscars, so they were powerhouses. And it was really... um, uh, Fatal Attraction really changed the way women were viewed in film Uh, at the time not just in Hollywood, but in America, it, it, it's still sort of having a, an effect. Um, there's some famous stories around that, which we can talk about when we talk about failed attraction. But, um, but, but the films that year, there were some other really great films that should have been nominated, like um, Empire of the Sun. You could even say The Untouchables might have gotten a Best Picture nomination since it was, it was all the rage that year. Um, a couple of movies that were completely ignored by Oscar, um, namely Full Metal Jacket, which I think that you kind of lose all credibility when you don't nominate Full Metal Jacket for Best Picture in 1987. I don't see how you don't nominate it, but you don't. And I think the reason, one of the reasons they didn't was because Platoon had just won, and they felt maybe they had sort of done Vietnam, but... Full Metal Jacket is a masterpiece. If you've never seen it, it's just a fucking masterpiece. And it's, Go ahead. I'm going to say it's one of those things that happens to Kubrick all the time, though, that his movies are not really appreciated the year they come out as much as they are five and ten years later. Looking back on it, it, it is absolutely impossible to ignore the achievement of what Kubrick was doing with Full Metal Jacket. But at the time, it might have just seemed so bizarrely chaotic and and. and the narrative structure was was just un, unheard of at the time. They didn't make movies like that. No, nothing. It had never nothing like that had ever been seen before. And it was so intensely brutal and depressing that it might have. Very people, depressing. I think it might have been hard for a lot of people to watch. It was hard for me to watch even now. 
Well, full that metal combination ja- of the way it starts out kind of funny and then it gets really hardcore, I think, mm. is really throws people for a loop. And I think the the platoon comparison is apt because I think when it came out, when Full Metal Jacket came along, it was another Vietnam movie. But I think now we're all smart enough to realize that it was it wasn't really about Vietnam so much as it was about war mm-hmm. and about human nature in general. Vietnam was just sort of the vehicle for Kubrick to tell this this story. Um, and I think it also, even though he had never been recognized previously, the film is still competing with his previous body of work. And I think at the time especially, and even to a degree now, it was seen as a lesser film from a one-time genius. Yeah, and I thought that until I watched it again. And I think one of the reasons why it seems like a better movie to me today than it ever did is because, yes, we know that Spielberg, or Spielberg that Kubrick, is a kind of a master at, you know, ruminating on the darker aspects of the male psyche or of human nature, <clears throat> specifically in the male, though, I would think. Mm-hmm. And I think Full Metal Jacket really gets at our warring nature, you know, similar to Clockwork Orange, you know, um, and, and I guess Paths of Glory, uh, maybe Dr. Strangelove in a funny satirical way, um, certainly Lolita. But the ugliness of the American soldier in Full Metal Jacket, I, I would imagine, is it would would have been tough for people to take coming on the heels of Platoon when they were celebrating the American soldier and they were trying to lift up the Vietnam vets who were coming home losers. And here you had you had a depiction of you know evil, of cruelty, of abuse. And it's ugly. And it's an ugly thing to watch, but it really fits in to, with today's not views of soldiers. Of course, we, we love and appreciate our armed forces. But what America has become, the empire, the ugly American empire that we've become all over the world, bullying uh, different countries and our drone strikes and, you know, invading Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. I mean, you know, we're, we're pretty, we're, we've become pretty ugly. And I think that this movie really speaks to that, even though it didn't know it was at the time. But I th- I'm not. Sure. I think maybe Kubrick knew that it was at the time, but nobody else maybe realized that's what right. he was doing. And I think that when we say when we talk about the ugliness of soldiers, we want to make clear that these are young kids who are drafted into the army who are turned into monsters. They <laughs> don't. They're, they're not monsters before they go through boot camp. But boot camp is designed to turn them into monsters. Yeah. And that is the part that's that is almost makes me sick to my stomach to see that it's so difficult to watch that they, they almost have to fast forward or step away from it and come back to it because it is so intensely it infuriates me so much to see that that's what happened that's the thing that's so brilliant about it is because it's it pointedly takes this group of of who are basically kids and they're they're kind of goofy and likable and and it just destroys them and turns them into these monsters it's not an anti-soldier it, i mean it, it's an anti-war and anti-soldier movie but it doesn't put the blame on the soldiers no. it shows you how those soldiers are made and then shows you the result of what happens when you unleash them on the world yeah exactly mm-hmm. that's a beautiful way to put it um and the thing about that first half uh, you know boot camp where, where they're where they're bullying the one you know the one fat guy into um killing himself basically uh all of that is a microcosm of what then happens in the second half of the movie you know in the vietnam scenes you know they're doing the same thing you know that the toughness the the inhumanity instilled in them to beat up that guy because you know they're punished for his weakness 
you know, it's a funny scene in a way because that, you know, Arlie Ermey is so funny as um, the drill sergeant. Like, he's funny and creepy and awful, but it's funny. You know, I'll cut off your head and shit down your throat. I mean, the lines that he has are just like, wow. You you wouldn't hear those in a movie today, you know. not A lot of the stuff in this movie is so un-PC. It's so, like, shocking. It would not pass muster today. Well, and what you were saying about how it's funny, that's what makes it difficult. Because up until the point where they beat the crap out of Sergeant Pyle, or, or Corporal Pyle, Private Pyle, whatever he is, up, up until the point where they beat him up with the, with, the, with, the, um, with the pillowcases full of soap, and Private Joker just watches in horror and doesn't do anything to stop it, then the movie takes this really nasty turn. Mm. But up to that point point even though it's harsh and even though the sergeant is saying all these terrible things it's still funny and 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 sort of light and it, it, it but then it just becomes really difficult when he get, kills himself that right. scene is one of the most haunting and disturbing scenes in, in any film and it really does take the movie in a whole different direction you're not really prepared for that scene i don't think and Kubrick uses every every trick and tool that he has perfected throughout his career about framing and and pacing and camera angles and everything to make that scene as 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 to carry as much impact as possible, so that it has a psycho, psychological effect on me that is almost like a nightmare. The, the the lighting, the expressionistic lighting there in that bathroom, and the just the fact that they're in a toilet, and everything about it is just gets inside, gets under my skin to a degree that makes me really, really uncomfortable. Another thing that makes me uncomfortable, I do see that a lot of people can find would find the dialogue funny and would find uh, the drill instructor. Uh, some of those lines, um, you almost gasp. It's kind of a gasping laughter. But one thing that makes me really, uh, I can't reconcile because I know that I really was a drill instructor. He was brought in as Kubrick's uh, consultant on the movie, and he had to lobby in order to get the role. And he, in order to to win Kubrick over, he improvised all of those lines based on things that he had seen done at real at a real life at boot camp when he was a drill instructor. So it was coming out of his own mind. So this guy is not an actor. He's he's really. We say a lot about, well, he's just playing himself, but this guy really was playing himself. And so that makes me really uncomfortable to think that he did this to people at boot camp in real life. That's that you, John Wayne? Is this me? Who said that? Who the fuck said that? Who's the slimy little communist shit twinkle toad cocksucker down here who just signed his own death warrant? Nobody, huh? The very fucking godmother said, I'm fucking standing. I will PT you all until you fucking die. I'll PT you until your asshole for sucking buttermilk. Was it you, you scroungy little fuck, huh? Sir, no, sir. You little piece of shit, you look like a fucking worm. I bet it was you. Sir, no, sir. Sir, I said it, sir. Well, no shit. What have we got here? A fucking comedian, private joker. I admire your honesty. Hell, I like you. You can come over to my house and fuck my sister. <clears throat> you little scumbag. I got your name. I got your ass. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Now get up. Get on your feet. You had best unfuck yourself or I will unscrew your head and shit down your neck. 
sir. Yes, sir. Private Joker, why did you join my beloved corps? Sir, to kill, sir. So you're a killer? Sir, yes, sir. Let me see your war face. Sir, you got a war face? Ah! That's a war face. Now let me see your war face. Ah! Bullshit. You didn't convince me. Let me see your real war face. Ah! You don't scare me. Work on it. Sir, yes, sir. What's your excuse? Sir, excuse for what, sir? I'm asking the fucking questions here, Private. Do you understand? Sir, yes, sir. Well, thank you very much. Can I be in charge for a while? Sir, yes, sir. Are you shook up? Are you nervous? Sir, I am, sir. Do I make you nervous? Sir. Sir, what? Are you about to call me an asshole? Sir, no, sir. How tall are you, Private? Sir, five foot nine, sir. Five foot nine. I didn't know they stacked shit that high. You trying to squeeze an inch in on me somewhere, huh? Sir, no, sir. Bullshit, it looks to me like the best part of you ran down to crack your mama's ass and ended up as a brown stain on the mattress. I think you've been cheated. Where in hell are you from anyway, Private? Sir, Texas, sir. Holy dog shit, Texas, only steers and queers come from Texas, Private Cowboy. And you don't much look like a steer to me, so that kind of narrows it down. Do you suck dicks? Sir, no, sir. Are you a Peter Pupper? Sir, no, sir. I bet you're the kind of guy that would fuck a person in the ass and not even have the goddamn common courtesy to give him a reach around. I'll be watching you. Did your parents have any children that live? Sir, yes, sir. I bet they regret that. You're so ugly you could be a modern art masterpiece. What's your name, fat body? Sir, Leonard Lawrence, sir. Lawrence, Lawrence, what, of Arabia? Sir, no, sir. That name sounds like royalty. Are you royalty? Sir, no, sir. Do you suck dicks? Sir, no, sir. Bullshit, I'll bet you could suck a golf ball through a garden hose. Sir, no, sir. I don't like the name Lawrence. Only faggots and sailors are called Lawrence. From now on, you're Gomer Pyle. Sir, yes, sir. Do you think I'm cute, Private Pyle? Do you think I'm funny? Sir, no, sir. Then wipe that disgusting grin off your face. Sir, yes, sir. Well, any fucking time, sweetheart. Sir, I'm trying, sir. Private Pyle, I'm going to give you three seconds. Exactly three fucking seconds to wipe that stupid-looking grin off your face, or I will gouge out your eyeballs and skull fuck you. One, two, three. Sir, I can't help it, sir. Bullshit, get on your knees, scumbag. Now choke yourself. God damn it, with my hand, I'm nuts. Don't pull my fucking hand over there. I said choke yourself. Now lean forward and choke yourself. Are you through grinning? Sir, yes, sir. Bullshit, I can't hear you. Sir, yes, sir. Bullshit, I still can't hear you. Sounds off like you've got a pair. Sir, yes, sir. That's enough. Get on your feet. Private Pyle, you had best square your ass away and start shitting me Tiffany cufflinks, or I will definitely fuck you up. Sir, yes, sir. During Vietnam, and now he's playing this role in, in a movie, and it's supposed to be funny. I don't find it funny. But I, I think that it's important to see, because mm. you, that is what it takes to build an American soldier. That's what it takes. And I don't think a lot of people see that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have to be stripped of your humanity and your dignity because you have to be able to take orders and not question those orders ever. Mm -hmm. And I know a guy who's a Marine, and he said that that is exactly what it was like. They really, he really literally spoke like that. I mean, not the. Oh, I believe that it is. That's what makes, that's why I don't, that's why it it makes me uncomfortable because I know it's exactly what it was like. And so we're not seeing a fiction at all. We're seeing a reality. And so when I'm seeing something, 
some of you that is so real. I'm thinking about the 50,000 guys who were killed in Vietnam, and I'm thinking about all of the vets who came back from Vietnam and who were psychologically yeah. scarred for the rest of their lives because of what they had to go through in Vietnam and boot camp because of guys like, not not like the drill instructor, but exactly I put the blame on people like the actor who played the drill instructor because he really was a drill instructor in real life. Yeah. He was doing his job, though. He was doing I mean, his I, job. I don't have a problem with him. I'm, I'm, I have a problem with a system that would want boys to, to, to become soldiers, but I don't have a problem with the guy whose job it was to make them into soldiers. And I don't think it's ever been... I don't think war, warring humans have ever been nice. I think we've always oh, been savage right. and inhuman and cruel and when it comes to you know killing other people without thinking twice like there's a reason why they have that shot in the helicopter with that guy who is saying how you know easy it is for him to kill women and children you know Kubrick takes it to a satirical level, like he does with all of his films. You know, The Shining, which is as horrific as it is, it is. It does have elements of humor. So does Lolita. There's always that line with Kubrick where it's it's so bizarre that it's that it's absurdly funny, like Blue Velvet. You know, the the um, Dennis Hopper scene with with um, Isabella Rossellini. It's the same kind of thing. Like they they hover on that line. You know, mm-hmm. to and make I, I it- guess the reason I can take The Shining and and Doctor Strangelove and Lolita and movies like that, I can enjoy the black humor because that didn't happen. That is pure fiction. The Shining never happened, but Vietnam really did happen. And so I cannot ever forget that when I'm watching that movie, and I can't ever forget the horror, not only of what was done to American kids, American teenagers, but what was done to the people of Vietnam. And I just can never get past that when I watch the movie. And it's... Yeah. it's, it's that's the thing my, it's my problem, not, though. It's my yeah, problem. That, that's the thing is you're not supposed to forget those things. He's mm-hmm. wanting you to think of all those things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think uh, Doctor Strange. I'm glad Sasha brought up Doctor Strangelove because to me, it's the it's the biggest 
it's the most similar of all of his movies to, to Full Metal Jacket, even though they're both very different, but they're both anti-war pictures. They're both satires. But Dr. Strangelove, like you were saying, exists in this fictional, absurd world, whereas he's taking, he's taking the fictional, absurd world of Dr. Strangelove and he's bringing it back to Earth and making it real in Full Metal Jacket. And that's why it's a much more difficult movie to watch, because it, mm-hmm. because it does seem real after a while. Yeah. Right. In Dr. Strangelove, there are absurd things that happen that you think, well, that could probably never really happen in real life. You would never really have a general, or, or you never really have a, a conversation between between the president of the United States and, and the, the premier, the premier of Russia, that would go like that. But right. you can see in Full Metal Jacket, you can see soldiers on the ground looking at a map and not even knowing which way to turn the map. To keep turning the map upside down and sideways, trying to figure out where they are. Yeah. You can imagine that really happening, and that's just awful. That is mm-hmm. that that that's an absurdity that re- that's an absurd chaos that really did exist that people had to live yeah. through. But he toys with you, and I think that that's one of the reasons why Full Metal Jacket didn't sit well in any category in the Oscars and I think that's why it didn't quite make money I think that it it doesn't tell you what to feel at all mm. and it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't let you off the hook as a viewer mm. you know and I think it's that's what where its brilliance lies and I think it's a really difficult film to process but I think after all these years for me looking back on it I felt a lot the way you do Ryan when I first mm. saw it when I was young in my 20s but I think I feel like now when I watch it, it it reaches such a level of absurdity and horror that it it, it, it remains as complicated as a, a, a you know an emotional experience as as like Vertigo does. Vertigo to me, Hitchcock's Vertigo is similar in that it's it doesn't really put you anywhere comfortable when you're watching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're and it continues to eat after you after yeah. you've seen it, and it can, it weighs on your mind, and you try to turn it over, and you try to find the answers, and you try to find try to get the answers that it may be trying to tell you and like you said it doesn't give you any simple answers it, it gives you it gives you mixed messages in fact yeah it wants it, you to think you're supposed mm-hmm. to think oh matthew modine is funny and he's mm-hmm. this loosey-goosey character who's going to take you on this funny journey and he's always going to be making jokes and you know and you're going to be able to anchor yourself with him well he turns out to be you know um unreliable in that way you know it's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's it's a really dark. He's unreliable because he's ineffective. He's right. he, he he's he, he goes with the flow so much that he that he doesn't have any effect on 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 anyone around him, and he doesn't really he doesn't really have an, an, a character arc that leads him to any satisfying place. For me, at the end of the movie, you, you feel happy for him that he's happy that he's able to go home and that he's survived. But what the movie doesn't show you is whether or not he's going to be tormented for the rest of his life about the fact that he had to shoot that sniper or not. Whether he'll be able to live with that or whether he'll have nightmares about it. Oh, and I'm I think sure. that's where the movie sort of lets you off the hook too easily, and where a lot of movies like that do, where you see these tragic circumstances, but you never have to see the aftermath and i don't so you think don't... that's true at all i think that's the whole that's the whole point of the movie is it's taking this likable goofy character and he winds up not only being an innocent bystander but being an active participant in the crescendo of the whole film that, that the whole film builds this dramatic moment where they have to decide whether to kill this vietnamese girl mm-hmm. and he he does more than just stand back and watch which is what he did with 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 
private pile, mm-hmm. he is an active participant in it. Yeah. And to me, that's yeah. horrifying. And that's yeah, it doesn't matter what effect it has on him. It's the effect that it has on me as the viewer that's, that matters. Right. I can see that. He's active. Even he... By, he can, he's, he's active for sure. I just meant that I think that he's a little bit ineffective because, for one thing, what he, can, what he does with the sniper can also be seen in a way as a mercy killing because she is begging to be killed, even though she, even though the circumstances that led her to be in the situation where she's dying and begging to be killed are, are partly the fact, the fault of the United States and, and soldiers anyway. But he does do her a favor by killing her because that's what she's begging for. But I was watching, I watched it back a couple of times that scene, and mm-hmm. he has a look on his face right before he does it that is, you know, really frightening and haunting. And it doesn't mm-hmm. look like he's doing it as a mercy killing. It looks like he's doing it as an initiation. Mm, right, because he wants to have that uh, certified kill. Yeah. He wants. He wants to get that. 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 He wants to attain that. That. That goal that all the soldiers are looking for. So you can go back home, or you can. You can. You can talk to your. To your. Um, fellow soldiers or comrades and you can all you, you you've made you've been initiated because you've had that certified kill yeah so i think it was it was such a dark film that i don't even think that it had much critical acclaim um I, again i don't think especially on the heels of platoon people quite knew what to do with it i feel like now in the context of 2013 it, it has a much more um clarified view of of the united states um, What's and absurd and kind of sad in a way is instead of Matthew Modine, who gives a really incredibly complex, like you said, and detailed performance, much more than you would think would be possible to, to ring out of that role, he doesn't get nominated. But who does get nominated for Best Actor is Robin Williams, crack, you know, cut, <laughs> making wisecracks in Good Morning Vietnam. <laughs> no. Another make, Vietnam movie. Making us feel is, good about Vietnam. Yeah, making us feel good and about how, how fun Vietnam was to work for a radio station and how is everything is just fun and games. Yeah. And that is what the, the category me chose to honor that year instead of some more complex dark film well they did not want to go anywhere near um full metal jacket other Um, films that came out that year which are worth noting um uh barfly the big easy dirty dancing which was a huge cultural phenomenon hollywood shuffle which was filmed by robert townsend an african-american filmmaker who made a movie about all the black hollywood tropes and i don't know how it was that that funny movie that seemed to change the way people thought about um you know black actors in hollywood how it didn't start a whole movement but it happened it came it went nobody really talked about it after that it's a great movie worth checking out really really funny um I wish I'd seen it now. I mean, I wish I had something to say about it because I, I don't even, I'm not familiar with it at all. Sometimes maybe before the, the podcast, like two or three days in advance, we need to tell each other about, tip each other off to movies. Well, I didn't we even know it was out. this year until I was mm-hmm. looking on, um, I was looking yeah. on the on the thing to see to see what other movies there were this year and, and, um, and that was up, Hollywood Shuffle. It's really funny. Uh, it was a big deal in the moment, but then, like Sasha said, it just kind of disappeared. I watched it recently, and the humor hasn't held up super well, but it's still, it's still, a, it's still a really good movie. It's, it's, uh, and, and it seemed like the beginning of something. And it was kind of pre. I mean, she's got a habit had come out already, but I hadn't seen it yet. I saw Hollywood Shuffle before I saw she's got a habit, and it just seemed like the start of something that it never did. really happened. It seemed like the doors were being cracked open for for black filmmakers. I thought in mainstream Hollywood, but the, those doors slammed shut. Mm-hmm. Um, House of Games, David Mamet, Ishtar. We should talk about Ishtar at some point because I love Ishtar. Uh, great movie, totally underrated. Um, Near Dark, Catherine Bigelow's first film about vampires. Mm-hmm. Mate Wan by John Sayles. No Way Out. 
starring Kevin Costner, which is a really tight, really good thriller, totally underrated also. Roxanne with Steve Martin, which was kind of a big deal at the time. Sign of the Times, Prince. Um, again, Prince kind of making a, making a splash in film and, and sort of not really repeated since. Tough Guys Don't Dance, Norman Mailer's film, which to me was one of the worst films ever made, but interesting <laughs> to note. Who's That Girl, yet another cat- catastrophe in Hollywood with Madonna. And uh, Wings of Desire, which was maybe the most kind of popular film in my generation of that year. That's the only movie people... As far as China. foreign films, I think it was one of the one of the first foreign films that I ever became aware of. It was one of the first that I ever saw that really that knocked me out, knocked my socks off. That it definitely so- opened the door to me to, to foreign films. I didn't I didn't see it in the year that it came out, but I saw it a couple years later in college and it mm-hmm. and it really opened me up to that. Nineteen eighty seven for me, even though I didn't see it that year, is the year of Raising Arizona, which I know is not the first Cohen film. I, I know that um, Blood Simple came first, but I saw Blood Simple after I saw Raising Arizona. Raising Arizona was the very first Cohen film that I ever saw, and obviously it's a movie that's a million miles away from Oscar, but it has the seeds of a lot of what became great about the Coens, and it's still yeah. one of my all-time favorite movies. Absolutely. I'm amazed that, that that came out that year. When I was looking, glancing over the list, I didn't never even notice that on it. But yeah, that was a really... It's funny. Movies like Raising Arizona and... Um, Empire of the Sun. I don't know if you mentioned The Princess Bride or not. Movies like that can actually people name those movies as their as their favorite film of all time. I know people who yeah. would, who no, would I name didn't those mention The Princess Bride. Favorite, but they're so not Oscar-y. You, no, I know. You named, the twenty films that you named just a few minutes ago, none of them you can really imagine being nominated for Best Picture because they're just so much not in not what the Academy usually goes for. And that's a shame. It's really an indictment of what of the, of the Academy taste. But to a lot of people, The Princess Bride was. It was never the movie that I really liked. But I know a lot of women in my generation. It's it's like it for them. Mm. Um, also, RoboCop. Mm. <laughs> Remember RoboCop? Yeah. That was really popular that year. It, it kind of made it. It was a big deal and planes trains and automobiles uh, robocop was an important movie in my growing up i went into it assuming it was just going to be a crappy action flick and it has that element to it but i didn't realize at the time i didn't know who paul verhoeven was at that point so i didn't know that there was an actual auteur behind this film and that it was in its own way a satire i wouldn't say it's as good as something like dr strange love but it's just as satirical and just as just as sharp as that it is the, wonderful film. i think robocop especially i think uh, really uh, gains um, prestige in retrospect because it seems like it's pressing in a way because it it, it, for, it foretold what would become the militarization of, of America's police force. Exactly. Turning America into a military um, SWAT teams and stuff like that. And it also came along at the same time. I think one thing that happened in 1986 and 87 was Iran-Contra. And it, it, it sort of, it sort of, without maybe being intentionally commenting on the fact of, of how um, uh, authoritarian, authoritarian systems can become corrupt, it, it, it actually ended up in retrospect being a comment on the way that uh, American foreign policy was a failure because of, of uh, the way that, that things could get out of control and the, the corruption that went on behind the scenes at different levels. Exactly. I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but that, that, that that's sense. what that's what it means to me. I think sometimes these movies, you wonder where they came from, where they sprung from, but when you look back historically, they seems they seems to they seem to make more sense mm. in the context of 
It, it's like a lot of the sci-fi movies of the 50s seemed like crummy B-movies at the time, but it, in retrospect, we realized that they were all caught up in, in the Cold War and the mood of the country and all that kind of stuff, and RoboCop is very similar to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Thanks. Thanks for rescuing me there. I know it's kind of stumbling trying to rope around <laughs> and trying, not really making my point very well, but you, you nailed it. That's what I meant no, to say. No, you were making your point. Um, the interesting thing about that year is that if you take away a lot of the films that were that adults were paying money to see, like um, Broadcast News and uh, Witches of Eastwick and I, The Untouchables, Moonstruck, Good Morning Vietnam, and you, Three Men and a Baby, you could add. That was number one that year, <laughs> Three Men and a Baby. Uh, wow, fa- was it really? Att- yes, and oh Fatal Attraction was number I'd two. I'd forgotten how huge that movie was. I'm surprised. I never actually even saw it, I have to say. But it was number one, and it made $167 million. But if you take out those movies and you put them on TV, which is how it works now... You know, you're starting to see a similar kind of box office trend of, of you know, big budget sci-fi. Predator and Lethal Weapon mm-hmm. and stuff like that were in there, in the mix. Yeah. So things are except, starting to except change. Except for RoboCop, this was a pretty skimpy year for science fiction. But it, it's a, it was a really significant one, I think, looking back on it. I think it, people, people, I think, really underrate RoboCop as being like a B-movie, like you said. But it really has a lot of depth if you want to uh, take it apart, if you want to unpack it. Oh, yeah. It. And it had, 1987 was a really, really strong year for, for powerhouse women, especially Cher, who had two movies that year, Moonstruck and suspect um actually i think she might have had more than that but those are the two that, that spring to mind but you know you also had outrageous fortune with bet midler and um you know a fatal attraction with glenn close so you know women uh, share was in witches of eastwick too and witches of eastwick so you know women could really show up and drive the box office back then even though a lot of these movies also had very strong male um anchors but but still i mean it's nothing compared to today I mean, these are women in their 40s, a lot of them, you know. Why do I get the feeling that Moonstruck is disrespected? I have a deep abiding love for that movie. I always have and I always will. But every time it comes up, people seem to kind of dismiss it. Am I the only one who really likes it? Am I just out on a limb on this one? I, I, I'm not a fan. I'm sorry to say. What don't you like about it? I'm just curious. Um, well, a couple of things bug me about it. I just could never quite get over the fact that I knew Cher was not Italian. Right. I know that seems like a stupid petty thing, but it just it always bugged me watching it. Um, she also wore like a weird kind of a facelift thing under her hair, and that bugged me. Um, those are just petty things, though. You know, I'm just not I'm not much into the the rom coms. That's the thing is it's so much better than the typical rom-com. It's much more, to me it always seemed, it's a little cartoonish, but it still at its core had more um, real human feelings in it than any rom-com that you would care to look at today. They've descended so much that it makes it stand out even more to me. Well, that's great that you feel that way. I think you're right about that. It it really makes rom-coms today look, look really skimpy and pale in comparison. Yeah, and there are I, things- like it, I like its cynicism, but at the, at the heart of its cynicism, it has a it has a a warm core to it, which is sort of like catnip to me. I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it definitely does. And if you're wanting to go there, like I feel like my poor heart is so has been so savage that there's no recovery for it. Bring on Full Metal Jacket. I can I can take right. it. Ten viewings of it, but 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 Moonstruck is a little too optimistic. 
about human nature and love and uh, ultimately yeah. magical and everything works out in the end and every, there is somebody for everybody and we you know it is a very melancholy very sweet very funny well-written movie um but it's just not your cup of tea no it's just that you know that's not life to me anymore right you know that's totally fine i just i was curious to get at the root of it because i've sensed i've noticed other people making comments about it and i'm like wait a minute i always thought everybody loved moonstruck i was surprised to find out that they that not everybody loves it the same way that i do well it also beat broadcast news for screenplay and so i think that maybe is part of it when you look at the i think i don't even i don't like that share one over holly hunter or even um glenn close because I, it's like when you look at the movies that uh, that the Oscar winners um, triumphed over, that sort of sometimes makes me have a grudge against the movies that won. And yeah. I know that's not reasonable, but I do. I can't help it. Seems like it was Cher's moment, though. She'd been sort of building up to that point ever since Silkwood, and this was kind yeah. of finally the the crowning achievement for her, even if it yeah. wasn't her best performance oh, yeah. or her best movie. You're gonna marry my brother. Why you want to sell your life short? Playing it safe is just about the most dangerous thing a woman like you can do. I mean, you waited for the right man the first time. Why didn't you wait for the right man again? Because he didn't come. I'm here. You're late. This is your place. That's right. So this is where we were going? Yeah. You know, we had a deal. You told me if I came with you to the opera, then then you'd leave me alone forever. And I came with you. Now, I'm going to marry your brother, and you're going to leave me alone forever. Right? A person can, can see where they've messed up in their life, and they can change the way they do things, and they could even change their luck. So maybe maybe my nature does draw me to you. That doesn't mean I have to go with it. I can take hold of myself, and I can say yes to some things and no to other things that are going to ruin everything. I can do that. Otherwise, you know, what What good is this stupid life that God gave us? I mean, for what? Are you listening to me? Yeah. Everything seems like nothing to me now. I guess I want you in my bed. I don't care if I burn in hell. I don't care if you burn in hell. The past and the future is a, a joke to me now. I see that they're nothing. I see they ain't here. The only thing that's here is you and me. I want to go home. No. I'm going to go home. No. I'm freezing to death. Come upstairs. I don't care why you come. No, that's not what I mean. Loretta, I love you. Not, not like they told you love is. And I didn't know this either. But love don't make things nice. It ruins everything. It breaks your heart. It makes things a mess. We, we aren't here to make things perfect. The snowflakes are perfect. The stars are perfect. Not us. Not us. We are here to ruin ourselves and, and to break our hearts and love the wrong people and and die. I mean that the storybooks are bullshit. Now I want you to come upstairs with me and and get in my bed.
I love Sharon. I'm glad she got, and I'm glad she has an Oscar. I don't begrudge her the Oscar at all. I just, I just do think that there were, oh, as always, I, you can always say there are always better performances. And I do feel, but it, you know, there's Norman Jewish, Jewison again, who was nominated. This was his seventh nomination, and he lost again. The guy can't catch a break. He did a really <laughs> fine film. But um, no, and Cher was finally completing her Oscar story. And the thing about her was she always was the story at the Oscars. Her dresses, she, she says from reading Inside Oscar, she says some really outlandish things like whatever's on her mind she's really opinionated and funny and you know she was just she was she really was too big to ignore at that point plus she did three mm-hmm. movies that year and two right. of them three of them well the two of them were in the top 20 at the box office she was like the sandra bullock of that year you know mm-hmm. how do you deny somebody that oscar even though i think everybody knows that holly hunter um probably turned in the better you know skilled performance in broadcast news I wanted to talk a little bit about broadcast news, which is that I don't even think that Jim Brooks had any idea how how accurate his film would be about what was go- about to happen to to, net, to the news. You know. Oh how- God, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you said that because it supports what I feel. But I'm 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 mad that you said it instead of me because I was going to bring that up. <laughs> it's, in a way, it's almost like network in the way that it, it predicts what's going to become of the of news. It turns the it it makes it became it it. it uh, it explains and describes and portrays the cult of celebrity in the news, right? Right. Yeah, and and it, it does that, but it also shows, you know, the one scene where Holly Hunter is showing the, talking to the journalism students, and um, there, you know, she shows them what important news happened that day and then she says and this is what they ran instead and then she shows like a funny animal video or whatever it is and mm-hmm. everybody applauds at the end and she says um well i'm glad you like it because you're going to get a lot more of it and somebody says good and they were like really hostile audience but she's mm-hmm. exactly right i mean that is what has become of network news it's really that mm-hmm. is that's it in a nutshell and then that you was, got what, you 25 had, years ago and now it's yeah. even worse it's just you, awful and you have Albert Brooks, who was really smart and knew the news inside out, really intelligent guy with lots of good insight, but he just wasn't camera friendly. And so they, <laughs> instead of instead of making him the anchorman, they just get the, the, the hand puppet guy, right. you know, William Hurt, to be, because he's a pretty face. He's and, a and doesn't know it, but, doesn't, but doesn't know anything about the news. Right, and there's that great scene where Albert Brooks is sweating, and, you know, Nixon never sweated this much. <laughs> he finally gets his big break. And you know, um, William Hurt has given him given him um, you know advice on how to sit on his the, the back of his shirt, and Holly Hunter's given him her shoulder pads to make him look nice, you know. And, and he's like my little tailor, and, and <laughs> then of course he just d- dissolves into swe- a sweaty mess. Okay, twenty seconds there. Fifteen seconds. Ten seconds. Cue graphic. The Weekend Report with Aaron Altman. Go, Aaron. Good evening. In mood and language better suited to an espionage novel than the delicate world of the Western Alliance, the British Foreign Secretary today pounced on what he termed the nest of professional spies and amateur traders 
people were turning NATO headquarters into an instrument whose only true function is folly. We begin our coverage with Edward Town in London. Take it. The British Foreign Secretary used the annual meeting of NATO's foreign ministers as his forum for denouncing breaches of security. Any breach of security could upset the delicate balance in Europe. Intelligence sources believe that information involving NATO military deployment was passed on to Eastern Bloc nations. Are you seeing this? The information was apparently delivered in coded messages written on discarded paper bags from the NATO cafeteria. At least six cafeteria workers are under... Five seconds! Edward Town, London. The sub-bases referred to are located in five countries. Norway, Belgium, the Netherlands, Spain, as well as Great Britain. This is more than Nixon ever sweated. Our own State Department was rocked, not only by the revelation, but from the highly unusual persistence of the State Press Corps. Nice time. Martin Klein reports on the ruckus at Foggy Bottom. The State Department's... Just how noticeable is this? Breakdown at huh? Was a swift and unusual of the alliance. Are you here, David? Do you want a big one? Oh, good, Susie. Hurry! Ten seconds. We'll severely limit NATO's ability... Five seconds! Five State Department. Pretty fine, Aaron. A bomb exploded on a railroad bridge outside of Madras, India, sending a passenger train hurtling Josh more than Hansen. 200 feet down a mountain Josh slope. Railway Get officials in New Delhi Josh. said the bomb had been wired to the suspension bridge and had been detonated you know, by a control device. 120 people were reported injured, at least 22 people dead. I wish I were one of them. And... Uh, this is so funny. It shows, it shows Jim Brooks's gift with comedy. That whole scene because um, the somebody you know somebody leaves their hand in the in the shot, and you hear the as he's reading this, you hear somebody off screen going hand the hand the hand, <laughs> and then they bang the backdrop, and it's like bobbing back and forth. I mean, anything that could go wrong does go wrong, and then you juxtapose that with the scene with Holly Hunter and William Hurt where. She's feeding him his directions through the through his earpiece, and he doesn't have to do much because he's in her capable hands, you know. Mm-hmm. And of course, he collects the accolades. I mean, I just feel like that broadcast news dynamic is so much about what show business is about. Mm-hmm. You know? I loved it when I first saw it, but I loved it so much more after I because when I lived in Bangkok for a while, I worked for a nightly news program. We would turn out a thirty-minute news program every day during the day, and it would and we would broadcast it almost live with it with a, like a ten-minute tape delay at ten o'clock every night. And so I really got to live the reality of that and I got to see how true to life it really was and I also it, it really struck home with me how much that news can be manipulated by the way that wording can be changed or that the presentation can be changed in the editing in the way that the way that news is really uh, um, it's an entertainment it's become an entertainment yeah, and that's what we—that's what we did every night. We t- we would take the hard news, the hard tabloid news, the Thai news throughout the day, and re-edit it into an entertainment program at night. And it's—it was ridiculous. It was fun, but it was kind of absurd that we—that that's what—that's what happens. Yeah, it was great, and um, I don't think that uh, broadcast news sat. You know, particularly well again at the time and during the Oscars. If you look at that year, you know they were already in the. Um, 
you know, in, in, in the mode of nostalgia and wanting to sort of, you know, celebrate different times that were more easily understood. And, uh, um, broadcast news didn't win a single Oscar. Out of oh my God! One, two, three, that. four, five, six, seven nominations. Not one Oscar. Mm-hmm. It deserved to win screenplay at the very least. Um, mm-hmm. Actress. It was also nominated for cinematography and editing and picture. It really needed a best director nomination too. It was way too cynical. Tequila and eggs sound good. I have to be someplace. Now. I told what's his name. Time that I'd meet him. Call him up. <laughs> it can wait, right? I don't know. Ah, uh, I may be in love with him. I knew it. Get out of my house now. I want you out of here. Get out of here. I'm not kidding. Get out of here. You go to hell! Come back here. Come on. Don't go. This is important to me! I think it's important for you, too. Come on. Sit down. Sit down. that has nothing to do with me. Let me just be your most trusted friend now, the one that gets to say all the awful stuff, okay? I guess. Yes. You can't end up with Tom, because it totally goes against everything that you're about. Yeah. Being a basket case. I know you care about him. I've never seen you like this with anybody, so don't get me wrong when I tell you that Tom, while being a very nice guy, is the devil. This isn't friendship. You're crazy, you know that? What do you think the devil's going to look like if he's around? God. Come on, no one's going to be taken in by a guy with a long, red, pointy tail. Come on, what's he going to sound like? No. I'm semi-serious here. You're serious? He will be attractive. He'll be nice and helpful. He'll get a job where he influences a great God-fearing nation. He'll never do an evil thing. He'll never deliberately hurt a living thing. He'll just bit by little bit 
lower our standards where they're important. Just a tiny little bit. Just coax along, flash over substance. Just a tiny little bit. And he'll talk about all of us really being salesmen. And he'll get all the great women. Hey, Aaron! I think you're the devil! You know I'm not! How? Because I think we have the kind of friendship where if I were the devil, you'd be the only one I would tell. Well, you were awfully quick to run after Tom's help. When all right, you fine! Want help? Yes! And if things had gone well for me tonight, then I probably wouldn't be saying any of this. I grant you everything. But give me this. He personifies everything that you've been fighting against. And I'm in love with you. How do you like that? I buried the lead. She's in love with the cute guy, of course, and Albert Brooks is in love with her. And Albert Brooks ends up getting married, and, and William Hurt ends up getting married, and Holly Hunter doesn't. So you don't really have a fantasy playing out. And again, juxtapose that with Fatal Attraction, where the original story of Fatal Attraction was going to be that, that um, Glenn Close kills herself and frames the husband. And it was going to end in this dark, awful way of, like, she finally gets him and he's cursed for, for all eternity. But they screened it for audiences and the audiences booed it and didn't like it and were really unsatisfied. They wanted to see her punished. So it now ends with him drowning her and then the wife finishing her off with a gun. And, of course, it became the number two highest grossing film of that year and it's ended up sad because the movie that audiences rejected is actually pretty good but the one that was actually released and was successful is kind of a turd the ending i think yeah the i don't, I don't really like that ending for one thing it's too much of a ripoff of uh, of the uh of that french film what is it their guy comes up out of the bathtub uh crap can't think of it <laughs> well, I that, know exactly what you're thinking of. That I film can't. also did not win a single Oscar, despite how much money it made and how many um, nominations it got. But it was a good and thing. The way for, it captured the zeitgeist of the moment, too. It, yeah, it really did. You know, because of, it was a great thriller until the end. Yeah, I think the thing that stands out, you know, in watching it again, I watched it the other night with Michael, and the thing that stands out is Glenn Close's performance. And she apparently, you know, had to. He had originally he had originally wanted Deborah Winger, I think, for the part, and she said no. Or she got pregnant. Yeah, she got pregnant, so she couldn't take it. Um, oh no, maybe that was broadcast news. Actually, I think that was broadcast news where Deborah Winger was originally cast, and then they had to get Holly Hunter. But um, but nobody wanted to take on the the part of Alex in um, Fatal Attraction, and, and nobody wanted Glenn Close to have it because they didn't think she was pretty enough or erotic enough. And she sent it an audition tape, and and Adrian Line said, "The part is yours if you lose ten pounds." So she lost ten pounds, and she she's quoted as saying that. The only way she could get through those sex scenes is if she had, like, two margaritas. Wow. But wow. She, she really wanted to change her image, and so oh. she just drank that tequila and got, got busy. So what can I get you? I've got scotch, I've got vodka, I just mash it in the... Cut this shit, will you? Just cut it! I don't know what you're up to, but I'm going to tell you it's going to stop right now. No, it's not going to stop. It's going to go on and on until you face up to your responsibilities. What responsibilities? I'm pregnant. I'm going to have our child. Alex, that's your choice, honey. That has nothing to do with me. 
I just want to be a part of your life. Oh, this is the way you do it, huh? Showing up at my apartment? Well, what am I supposed to do? You won't answer my calls. You change your number. I'm, I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. You don't get it. You just, you don't get it. Don't you remember our weekend? It wasn't that wonderful. Why can't we just be like that again? I know you feel it, too. I mean, what are you so afraid of? <laughs> hey, hey, just don't flatter yourself, Alex. Go ahead, hit me. If you can't fuck me, why don't you just hit me? You're so sad. You know that, Alex? Lonely and very sad. Don't you ever pity me, oh, smug bastard. I'll pity you. I'll pity you because you're sick. Why? Because I won't allow you to treat me like some slut you can just bang a couple of times and throw in the garbage? I'm going to be the mother of your child. I want a little respect. You want respect? What are you doing? Please don't, please don't go. I didn't mean it. Please, I'm sorry. I'll tell your wife. Still, she didn't get any Oscar love. We should we should talk about Glenn Close a little bit. Somebody who has been repeatedly and consistently great, and has been repeatedly and consistently passed over. Yeah. The movie the movie I was trying to think. I'm sorry to go backwards, but the movie I was trying to think of a minute ago was called Diabolique. Diabolique. Right. Um, and he made by uh, Sharon Stone. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, and interesting about the directors that year, not a single American director was nominated. They're all foreign directors. Wow. That, that doesn't happen very often. That is interesting. Um, that's really bizarre, actually. Um, the directors just kind of. Oh wait a minute! No, I'm wrong about that. Norman Jewison. I'm so except for Norman Jewison, he was yeah. Adrian Lin, Lassie Hallstrom, John Borman, and Bertolucci, of course, are, are outside of America. But Jewison is American. Oh, Adrian Lin is an American. I thought he was. He's English. I, I think. Yeah, he's British. I think. Oh. So that's weird because. Um, yeah. So that means that that the only one American who who's left out was um, Jim Jim Brooks. Uh-huh. From the Best Picture lineup, right? Uh, it may have been too. Uh, he had since he had was coming off the heels of Terms of Endearment. It might have been too soon. Do you think to to give them the the big enchilada again? Probably, but let's get back to Glenn Close just for a minute. I really think the reason that she d- has never won, I honestly think it's because she's not pretty enough. I, I think you're right. I think you have to be pretty to win Oscars. It's sad because. Her performances hold up over time, even going back um, as far as the world according to Garp and maybe even before then. She's fantastic. It, it made me feel bad that Albert Knobs was in a better movie. She actually wasn't <laughs> the best part of it because I, I was rooting for her. I wanted her to be great in it, and I wanted the movie to be great because she's so deserving. I know. I agree. She really puts it all on the line, and, and she gives one of the best performances ever, I think, in um, 
and in a reversal of fortune in which she wasn't even nominated for that performance of Sonny Von Bulow. The thing about her is she plays she also plays like kind of ugly characters, unattractive characters. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to have one or the other. You have to be attractive or your character has to be attractive for them to vote for you. And it just never got there for her. Like she never could overcome an attractive character it had better have some sort of sympathetic aspect to it and her characters are almost sometimes they're just without any sympathy you cannot have any sympathy for them right right and or and or you have to just do something that's so over the top like kathy bates in um misery or Mm -hmm. linda hunt you know in in the year of living dangerously those are kind of semi you know arguably unattractive women who who won oscars but but to think that you have to struggle so hard to think of those names just shows how rare it is that it happens. Yeah. And it was also the year that Sally Kirkland kind of bought her, her Oscar. <laughs> she didn't really buy it, but she went, she really went overboard to get a nomination. She actually wrote letters to every Academy member. I know. Every single Academy letter um, member she wrote a personal letter to. Yeah. And she had, and the same with the, the Golden Globes people. She she had personal contact with every single one of them. She hired one of Hollywood's best publicists, um, Dale Olson, I think his name was, and told him that she was prepared to do anything, anywhere, anytime in order to get an Oscar nomination. Yeah. And he got it for her. I know. She, and she got it. She, and it made her whole life. You know, now she, she's one of the mainstays on the red carpet. Just so happy to be there. Yeah, and made her career too because she has never been out of work since then. And probably, and I'm sure her fees and her salaries have have, have reflected the fact that she's an Oscar nominee now. So whatever time and, and effort and, and personal money of her own that she invested really paid off for her. I haven't seen that movie though. Have you? What's it called? Anna. Anna. Uh-huh. Yeah, I saw it when it came out. She's pretty good in it. You know, she she just comes with a lot of baggage because I think she was like she wasn't a porn star, but she was you know she posed nude in magazines and stuff. And mm, she was on the cover of something called Screw Magazine, yeah. <laughs> cut, riding a pig on the back of a pig naked on Screw Magazine, and then she's an Oscar nominee. And she was the first actress I think to appear on the Broadway stage completely naked. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. No, she and she's in The Sting. Actually, she has a tiny part in The Sting where she's. Um, you know, she's that topless dancer in the beginning who's like, oh, you know, wow. shaking. I, did, I didn't realize that. Yeah, that's her. I wish Michael were here. I bet Michael knows a lot about Sally Kirkland. It seems like that she would be right up his alley. He would seem like he would know her biography inside out, I bet. Uh, it's true. He would. It's a character, and in Hollywood, you can get a, get away with being a character if you're a guy and your name is Jack Nicholson, but if you're a woman, that doesn't go over so well. Mm-mm. Funny you should mention Jack Nicholson. He was nominated uh, for Ironweed. Meryl Streep and, and Jack Nicholson were both nominated for Ironweed, which is a really, really dark, really dark, bleak movie. And it was, I think some, even though Meryl Streep had made a couple of films with Jack Nicholson before, and they were actually, there were screenwriters who were like them as a couple and who were, do, made, who were writing projects tailor-made for them. It, uh, Ironweed was the movie that made Meryl Streep get fed up with Nicholson once and for all. She said he was just too weird. She wow. didn't want to work with him anymore why i don't know that's a quote that i found that she that she became disillusioned with dickelson and she found him rather weird and that's in quotes so she said that he was rather weird that she didn't want to work with him anymore so that was the last film they appeared in together that was a really hard movie yeah. mm, ironweed is tough yeah depressing I, dark uh, not not 80s at all uh, it's it, 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 when it takes place in the depression right and the mm-hmm. dirt poor dirt poor couple of people and yeah. they're like you know uh I mean, their teeth are rotting out and everything else. It's rough. It's a rough movie. It is. But I'm, now I'm intrigued by this because nobody's ever said anything negative about Jack Nicholson. 
I'll have to find out where this. The quote is not attributed, but it is. It does. It does. That's that's the sentence, and the words are in quotes. And so I want to believe that it's a it's a reliable source. But I'll try to track that down. And under in what context she said that? And it is true that she never made another movie with him after that. So wow. something happened in that movie. She got. She got. She had enough of him. I would love to know what it was. Like, was he hmm. like womanizing with young underage girls, or you know? Maybe. Yeah. That, that, I wouldn't be surprised if that would if that were a fact, and if that were also something that would bother Meryl Streep. You know, that. I've always loved him. He was my first big movie star crush, I think. But in recent years, I've really just kind of soured on his personality. Why? And sort of the 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 piggishness of him really shows through now. And um, we talked about it a long time ago because it was it was seventy nine or eighty. But The Shining, I remember watching The Shining as a kid, and I was always rooting for the Jack Nicholson character. And it was only as I finally grew up and matured that I saw the movie from the perspective of poor Shelley Duvall who was put through hell just to make that movie by mm. Nicholson and by Kubrick too that it became a much more profound movie to me and, and it just kind of every time I see Nicholson now I just kind of shudder and I think the 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 peak of that was the, the last Oscars when he was like trying to horn in on on what's her name's you know Oscar moment it was just weird and creepy and gross mm, I see what you mean and you also too there's one of those actors like we've talked about before who've almost become a parody of themselves after yeah. a while they think that they know what their fans want to see them be and so they they start playing the role he's playing the role of Jack Nicholson all the time I just wish he would take those sunglasses off when he's at the at, in the Kodak theater yeah. you know it's just that's silly well he's always stoned you know I watched Witches of Eastwick recently a movie I loved at the time and it now it's almost unwatchable to me because of him, and it just seems like this misogynist piece of shit to me. Hmm. Mm. Even though it's got really three great female performances in it, it just seems hateful towards women to me. Huh? Uh, maybe, uh, maybe that's my own thing. I don't know. I haven't seen it in a long time. At least he does get his his payback, sort of. I, although I can't remember at the end whether that's flipped or not. But I. But at least they do. They're, they're, they're formidable adversaries. They win in the end, for sure. Okay, okay, good. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's... Uh, it's, it's I, The thing that throws me about it is that it's so rare to see a movie with three actresses right. in such strong... And not only them, but, like, Veronica Cartwright is the other creepy lady. She's great. Um, the thing that, that I never buy about which is of Eastwick is how he just how it's been distorted from the original John Updike novel, um, you know, Hollywoodized, and the the women in it are are really Hollywood actresses, and and in the book they're not really like that, and I think that you lose something when you you lose the whole point of of why he created those characters, why Updike did, why why mm-hmm. they were witches, why they were kind of Earth mothers in that town, and they become objects, sex objects, you know. Uh, the brown one, the red one, the blonde one, you know, like <laughs> like ice cream cones. Um, so, but the, but the premise, the Updike premise and the idea behind it, you know, of women wanting the perfect man and, and getting, you know, all the sex they need and, and they're just going to sell their souls for that great sex and that man who will do anything for them, all they have to do is, you know, sell their ovaries to the devil. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's ironic and it's funny, and, and Updike has been accused of being a sexist also. So it's not—I don't think your feelings about it are unfounded. 
you know, I just am always tripped out by it being three strong actresses. You know, I guess it's so rare to see that that it's hard for me to to see it negatively. And they're so great too. Susan Sarandon right. is so funny, undeniably. You know, um, so few directors give actresses a chance like that, and Mike Nichols is one who does. Yeah, I, and has repeatedly. Yeah, but it isn't it isn't altogether fun to watch because it's such a Jack Nicholson show. It says an inside Oscar that even though it starred three women and it made all that money, the only person anybody could talk about was Jack Nicholson. Right. And and maybe that's why it's unappealing to me now. It's it's uh, it's all symptomatic of how I'm sort of feeling about Jack in general. And if they had cast somebody else and let the actresses shine more and not made it all about him, um it would have it would have been more effective to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His trying to horn in on Jennifer Lawrence, you know. Yeah, that was horrible. <laughs> well, I mean, t- t- in his defense, she is a notorious pothead, and so is he. So I'm sure he wanted to just get stoned with her, you know. Yeah, but you know what? You take care of that when the cameras aren't rolling and she's not having her moment. Yeah. You know, I-, I was frustrated that he was trying to make her moment about him. Everything has to be about him, and it's always the Jack show, and I'm sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm glad I mentioned the Merrill thing so all this came out so we were able to open up and get it all out of our system because I've had, I've had mixed feelings about him, too. I mean, he's I mean he's Jack, so you got to love him. you got to love the movies that he was in in the 70s and, and uh, early 80s. But as time wore on, his, he, his personality sort of uh, gets, gets on my nerves, too. He's a funny guy, though. Diane Keaton has always said that he's the only man she ever really, really loved. You know, and and anybody who's ever worked with him has always said that he's really wonderful with women, and yet he can't ever stay faithful to any one woman. You know, and he's very open about that. We were talking about uh, the relationship between Jack Nicholson and Diane Keaton and Reds, and maybe that's a segue between Reds and uh, The Last Emperor because Vittorio Storero shot both Reds and The Last Emperor. Mm -hmm. And I think, in a way, his contribution to those movies cannot be underestimated. I think he's almost the co-director of those films, of Reds and The Last Emperor, because visually, the visual schemes and and the compositions and the camera angles and the tricks that he does with the camera... Uh, are so consistent between those two movies that they can't be entirely attributed to Warren Beatty and, and Bernardo Berlucci. It's, it's a Storero thing that he's doing. And mm-hmm. I've loved his work ever since The Conformist. And his, he's really one of the great cinematographers of all time. And so he, and he, I'm glad that he won um, Best Cinematography this year. And the, the Last Emperor is one of the few movies that went nine for nine. It was nominated for nine Oscars, and it won every single one of them. Whoa. Yeah, it won nine Oscars that year. Wow, it, it was a clean sweep. Mm-hmm. When everything it was nominated for. That, That's that, rare. I think, that, I think that had not happened since Gigi, and before that, maybe West Side Story. And I since know. then, it was only Lord of the Rings Return of the King, right? Yeah, I think so. Huh? Wow. But it just certainly deserved every tech award it won. That may be part of the reason that it swept is because you had all of these tech people at the at the peak of their careers. Um, Scarfiati, who, who did a lot of work for Martin Scorsese. I think Scarfiati uh, did the production design for Aviator, for instance. So he's really well-respected. He designed The Last Emperor and worked closely with Berlucci and Storero together. They, they together, the three of them, collaborated um, uh, on, on the the color schemes and things like that in the movie that, that, that make it blend together and weave the, the, uh, 
the visuals so well together. Wow. It is beautiful. You know, it's, it's a beautiful movie to look at. It's incredibly well done. And, and in a way, it kind of dwarfs its competition when you look at it in, in, in its scope. You know, um, mm-hmm. I think what people sometimes respond to is it hasn't really held up in history so much people don't really talk about it or aren't excited about it looking back i mean i think anybody who sat down and watched it would say wow that's an incredible film but but the other some of the other films but but particularly broadcast news have sort of resonated more Mm -hmm. over the years I think you're right. Broadcast News, a lot of people would say that they can watch it again and again. Of course, I told you too yesterday in an email that I've seen The Last Emperor maybe a dozen times. I'd say I can watch it again and again. I started watching it again this afternoon, and I just had to tear myself away so that I wouldn't spend three hours before the podcast. And I had other things I needed to prepare for, you know. But I could watch it over and over. I love it so much. And it's one of those movies for me that is for you, like The Social Network. The more you watch it, it starts to become almost dreamlike, and you see things that you, you 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 know where it's going because you've seen it so many times and so you know what's coming next but then it surprises you because you find new things to discover about the way that that it's uh the the, the compositions and things like that is so detailed and so rich for me i can just never i can never get enough of it i am going to miss you johnston i shall miss you your majesty do you think a man can become emperor again Thank you, Your Majesty. How can we say goodbye? As we said, hello. Farewell, Mr. Johnston. Farewell, Your Majesty. I know I'm alone. I know the two of you are not really all that fond of it. And you talk about that it's a little bit long. I like the television version, which is almost four hours long instead of three hours long. Wow. But I know that you love cinematography. You love the look Mm. of a film, you know, and and I Mm. do too, to a degree. But um, I feel like it was just never a movie that really grabbed me. But I I do want to watch it again sometimes. There are moments, I guess, that, that... 
Go ahead, Craig. It's it's unassailable, I think, as a movie. It's not a movie that I would ever say is bad or not well done or not beautiful or not extremely well crafted. It just is a movie that I can't personally get into. And actually, one of the frustrating things about it in terms of Oscar is that they showered Oscars upon it, and yet they couldn't even bother to give Peter O'Toole, who's never won an Oscar, a nomination for it. Oh, I know. He's one of my favorite parts of the movie. And mine, too. It would have been perfect for him. If a movie's going to be a clean sweep, then he might have been able to ride on the coattails that year and and pick up an Oscar, because it's a great role for him. It's fantastic. He plays such an important part in the the narrative um, that it's it's really a shame that he wasn't even nominated. Probably just as well that he wasn't, because he still would have lost to Sean Connery, who, mm. it, who, it was a good performance, but it was also kind of a career achievement performance. People have liked Sean Connery for years and years, but he'd never been in a movie that was seen as being awards worthy, and he finally hit kind of a home run in a movie that was very popular, made by a popular, well, not really necessarily popular, but um, a respected, you know, auteur. So about an important Sean, Sean Connery was going to win no matter what. Did not deserve it though. Albert Brooks deserved to win for um, for broadcast news, and if not Albert Brooks, Morgan Freeman for Street Smart, and if not Morgan Freeman, Denzel Washington for Cry Freedom. I mean, those are three incredible performances. The Sean Connery thing was a blowjob. Fine, you know, happy but inevitable. For him. That was my only point. I, I didn't yeah, mean that he was deserving, so, but that it was going to happen no matter what. Because he's so popular. I mean, they must not like Albert Brooks. You know, they just Albert must not Brooks like. Doesn't him. make them feel good. He, yeah. he makes them uncomfortable because he's uncomfortable, which is why he's brilliant. And he's not a snooty, you know, he's not from, he's from America, you know, and they, they wanted. This this year, 1987, is a really textbook kind of how I grew up watching the Oscars. Like, in my view of the Oscars as a young person, you know, if a movie was winning cinematography, well, first of all, the Oscars were still held, held in March at this time, by mm. the way. So there's a lot more time. There weren't. There wasn't the internet. There wasn't really cable TV. There weren't, you know, a million stupid bloggers out there. It was just the movies. And there was a lot of time between. And nobody really paid attention to the DGA and the WGA. And there was no PGA. There was no SAG. So there were no broadcast film critics. There was none of that. Nonsense. There was no way to follow it. There was no way to. Keep there was up the Golden them. Globes. Really were and there was Hollywood, and we're at the trades. You didn't even know what because these things didn't make the news. Right there. So there was yeah. the Golden Globes, and there was the Oscars. That's all you really knew about. And if somebody won the Globes, they had a really good shot at winning the Oscar because there was enough time to build enthusiasm and momentum from those wins. Not like today, where it's all picked apart. But at any rate, you know, the Last Emperor is your typical kind of Oscar winner. It's a, it's like out of Africa. It's a big epic. It's beautiful. If it starts winning, you can say, oh, well, they really must love that movie because it's winning costume and editing. And, and mm-hmm. then you know it's going to sweep, right? Mm-hmm. We don't really sweep, see sweeps like that very often anymore. I mean, the last one we saw was um, Return of the King, which was a clean clean sweep, but also Slumdog Millionaire won you know, most of its Oscars. I don't think all. But that was the year when, you know, Sean Connery would win for The Untouchables because he's a popular actor and he's he's a respected, you know, Scottish or British or whatever he is. Um, and he's not, you know, some crass American. I think he played the game that, that year, too. He, yeah. he was he was sort of publicity shy and it would never do the search, talk, show, talk show circuits and things like that. But this year he really did. He really yeah. knew that he had a good shot. And so he really played the game and, and put himself out there and, and did the work that they like to see an actor do in order to, to win an Oscar. And so that helped right. him, probably. Yeah, and I don't think Albert Brooks would have done that. 
mm -mm, doesn't seem like the type of personality or the type of person who would come across well even trying to do that. Right. He and did try to do that with Drive, and he kind of came across as a little bit crass and weird. Mm, that's right. That's a good yeah, point. Yeah, totally. And yeah. I also think they didn't like... They don't like James L. Brooks. They just don't. I mean, they, he's they, TV boy to them, probably. Yeah, mm -hmm. they gave him the terms of endearment. That was that. But for the most part, it was like you know, probably they were thinking Albert Brooks nepotism. You know, um, he's associated with Jim Brooks. That's probably the reason. But I don't think they had any idea that that movie would would retain you know such popularity over the years as it has. There was no way to know at the time how prescient it was either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't realize until until you look back that it really, that it doesn't seem like it's really saying too much, but it, it really was when you look at it in retrospect. It was really, it really had its finger on the pulse of what was about to happen to television news and to the media. Um, and it's double-edged because it's on one hand, it's this kind of hard-edged three-way romance that doesn't end happily for anybody mm -hmm. and at the same time the, the subtext of it being the industry itself mm -hmm. it's it's one of those brilliant movies that manages to combine two different things and and work really really well and it's funny really really funny so funny laugh out loud funny yeah it's great um you can't really argue with Olympia Dukakis winning supporting she deserved it and there she really had no competition particularly um and Bernardo Bertolucci was Bertolucci, so I, I don't see how he couldn't win that. They're not going to give it to Adrian Lyne, for God's sake. It could have gone Norman Jewison, but, you know, really, you look at that list and you can see no one else getting it but Bertolucci. That was the thing. The I think the thing about... They chose for the big categories. They had, you know, Last Emperor didn't really have any strong competition. That's how it was able to sweep... That's kind of what I meant earlier when I said it was like the, the default choice because what it was up against uh, uh, in comparison, it didn't really hold up. I mean, it doesn't look didn't look as monumental or as impressive. What Bertolucci did, being able to to pull the financing together independently, no studio backed that film. He put that financing together, that huge epic story together independently, and, and then to get permission from the Chinese government to be the first film ever to film in the Forbidden City, right. and they 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 let him do it. They kept their hands off. They would they. Did didn't interfere at all in what he wanted to portray. That's amazing that he was even able to pull that off. That you know, aspect of it is actually one of the more interesting interesting parts of it. And I wonder, um, in, in 1987, this was just a few years after the, the Chinese cinema at that point was just sort of starting to, to take off. Mm -hmm. um, Hong, Hong Kong cinema had been making a splash, but um, mainland China cinema hadn't really internationally. But about five years before um, Last Emperor came to town, so to speak, um, people like um, Zhang Yimou and um, Chen Kaiga were graduating from film school. And I just wonder whether that was part of the Chinese government's thinking that they were going to bring in these Westerners to sort of... Um, Introduce China to the world. Introduce the China, introduce to, China to the world and also introduce introduce the world of filmmaking to these young, bright, up-and-coming Chinese filmmakers. Oh, and it, yeah. it doesn't seem surprising to me that it wasn't long after that that 
that they started coming out with movies like Raise the Red Lantern and Farewell My Concubine and all these and, and China really became a player in world cinema. Good mm-hmm. point and because also the, they learned so much from the old style old school uh, Hollywood filmmaking because all of those films that you mentioned were shot in like with the old Technicolor cameras that Hollywood right. has stopped using and so they had the look of old of old 1950s and 60s Hollywood. They were able to achieve what Hollywood has sort of discarded. Right. What and so it, it was a turning point, I think. And a lot of people probably, a lot of people maybe had that in mind. You're right, when they were marking their ballots, that this was a, a groundbreaking milestone in a way uh, for, for Chinese cinema to enter the, the global marketplace or the, the global consciousness. And it must have seemed very exotic at the time because China mm-hmm. up to that point was still very closed off. I mean, we Nixon had visited in the 70s and they were kind of a thing, but we didn't really know very much about them. I think we know a little bit more about them now, but at the time it, it, it had to have seemed very exotic. And what a marvelous opportunity for Bertolucci and Storaro to be there in the Forbidden City to film, like you were and saying. And just to, to think that a filmmaker can make a movie on that scale and fill and and what it is basically is a marxist manifesto marxist manifesto and you know and Bertolucci is a famous marxist and and it's, to make a, such a political film it's like what Warren Beatty tried to do with Reds but they mm-hmm. wouldn't they couldn't accept that it but was too with, obvious what, it was too, a little was bit too obvious. subtle that's right yeah I mean, the royalty thing really helped but what i love one of the things, one of the many things I love about the Last Emperor is that it shows royalty in a way that I like to see them portrayed as a bizarre thing <laughs> that should not exist. You should, bizarre you should take, and decadent. Yeah, you should take the royalty and 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 bring them back down to earth and take the royalty away from them because there's no no it makes it makes it it points out the absolute bizarre absurdity of of letting a person uh, inherit the rule of a country. Right. You know that makes no sense whatsoever, and it really brings that to light. You know that that here's someone who doesn't have any qualifications whatsoever except just the lack, an accident of birth, and he's thrown into the, into this worldwide turmoil, and he's unable to cope with it because, of course, he's not qualified. He there's no there's no reason why he should be the ruler of China. Not only the ruler, but they looked at him looked upon him as if he was almost a demigod. Just it's tragic. Yeah, it's tragic though too, and it, and it, and it helps. It's not as if I I hate the royalty because I mean, they're, as individuals, they're they're all, I'm sure all really fine people. It's not their fault that they're born into royalty. But at the same time, I just really think that it's crazy that royalty royalty exists in this day and age. Yeah. Well, they and really liked the last ever appealed to Americans at the time because we're all about that. The mm-hmm. lack lack of hereditary rulership is a big deal here. I still feel like it was a wash that year, even though it's great that it won and everything. It just, it didn't really, like it, like so many Oscar years do, it didn't really set that year in time. It didn't set it in its place in, in history, in cultural history, which mm-hmm. is often the case with Oscar years. They don't, they pick movies that are out of their time. They don't pick movies that really describe the time, and I kind of wish that they did. I wish they picked the broadcast news. You know, I wish they picked the movies that were, you know, right up to the minute describing mm-hmm. our world. You know, because then you can really put them in context. What you have with The Last Emperor, it's a beautiful movie and everything, but it's sort of, it could win in any year and any time, you know, and, and the Oscars. It would win, it would probably win today if it were up. 
I see what you mean. Yeah. Another thing too that we we have talked about before that we try to bring in every every episode is the um, social and current events and political situation in the country, how that reflects in Hollywood. This was the end of the Reagan administration, and the end the last year of the Reagan administration when there was Iran Contra and the savings and loan meltdown when it turned out that the savings and loan uh, industry had built American taxpayers of 1.4 trillion dollars. It's such a reflection of what happened in Bush's last year of his presidency that it's amazing that people don't talk about that more to me that the that the very last year of reagan's presidency showed what a fraud he was showed that his foreign policy was a fraud and showed that his economic policies were a fraud and that's reflected really well in wall street which we have not talked about yet because wall street was another big movie that year and michael douglas won best actor right actor yeah and I think there were some stories about how they didn't think that the Academy would go for Wall Street because it was too dark. And also they didn't think that Michael Douglas could pull off that role when he first got cast. They didn't think he could he could do it. But it's funny because he plays, um, you know, the, the husband, the sheepish husband in Fatal Attraction that year. But he also plays Gordon Gecko. And talk about a kind of landmark performance. That performance really... It's one of those big ones. It's like Alec Baldwin and Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross. It's sort of one of those, it breaks the mold, you know, and then mm-hmm. it inspires many, many more performances just like it. There, there'll never be another Gordon Gecko moment. And that movie really did define the 80s to me more than any other. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms. Greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And greed, you mark my words, will not only save Teldar paper, but that other malfunctioning corporation called the USA. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Thing is, too, that's scary about about Gordon Gecko is that I think he was the sort of psychological template for all of the guys who broke the law recently, leading up to the most recent meltdown. They all fancied themselves a bunch of Gordon Geckos, and it's frightening to me that that character should be a monster, and yet people sort of hold him up as being mm-hmm. he, he he's the bad guy of the film, and yet people revere him. He's sort of like um, Al Pacino and Scarface, this horrible, disgusting person that people just seem to love anyway. Because weird, the movie's weird to me. The movie dwells so much on the glamour of it and the wealth right. and, the, and, the, and the luxury of it. And that's, you see that for two hours, and you don't realize until the very last five or ten minutes of the movie that he's about to go to prison. And you don't see the time that he spends in prison, which would not be so glamorous and would not be so, wouldn't be someone you'd want to emulate. You, can, you come away from the movie only remembering the fact that he's, that he's a, a, a playboy, big player, mover and shaker, uh, and millionaire. And um, I think that's part of what I bothered me a little bit about about movies like like Full Metal Jacket and Wall Street both is the way that people can audiences can come away with the act actually the exact exact opposite message that I think the movies mean, mean to carry. Mm-hmm. People can be keep people can be turned on people can can be stirred by war movies and want to join the army. When they when it should have the opposite effect on them, people can watch Wall Street and they should be turned off by Wall Street. But instead, right. it makes them want to follow that 
follow that path. And yeah, that's that Ayn Rand thing. You know, it, it yeah. it's definitely like the the Paul Ryan's of the world would would identify with with Gordon Gecko mm-hmm. and think he was great. That 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 was the mentality in the eighties. In fact, mm-hmm. that's why it was so brave and interesting and brilliant of Oliver Stone to create that character because, like you say, I don't think everybody got it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Also worth noting, this is kind of. Uh, back to Fatal Attraction a little bit, but I just want to, did want to bring it up in talking about quintessential 80s movies is a lot of people think of Fatal Attraction um, as punishing women, you know, for their sexuality or, or working women and independent, unmarried women for, you know, being sad, desperate, pathetic, always out for your husband, right? That was one complaint. But the other thing that happened about that, the other fallout from that was the post-AIDS generation of sex, sex and cinema, mm-hmm. and how it then had to become um, a punishing thing, a damaging right. thing, and you have sex and you die. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you have sex out of wedlock and you die. And if you look at the Oscar movies after Fatal Attraction, the Best Picture winners, you don't see a lot more graphic sex. And and when you do, it's sort of followed by by it being a punishment or, or it's kind of a, you know, she went down the, 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 the path of, you know, of um, sluttiness, and and she paid her for her crimes. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it. I even think to this day we don't have a lot of graphic sex in movies because of um, Fatal Attraction. Yeah, Hollywood has never been good at graphics at portraying sex of any kind, graphic or loving, either one. And I think it became more and more difficult after when when the era of AIDS. Um, started making people really yeah. nervous about about showing that sex could be erotic and fun and that's i will go back just really briefly and say that's one thing i love about berlucci is all of his films are so erotic in the last emperor too although the sex is really sort of strange pretty, and kinky but there's some really yeah. kinky stuff that goes on it is really erotic it's erotic but not compared to his other films i don't think um no, uh, no. Uh, it would take until 1994's um or 1993's The Piano for, for sex to really enter the best, best picture race again with the with uh, Jane Campion's film, which it shows sex in a positive way and not in a damaging, punishing way. Interesting. How, how many... I forgot what you said the year, but I missed It was 19... Said. It looks like... Um, it's Oscar year 1994, so it was film year 1993 hmm. was The Piano. But... Um, in the previous time, the, the earlier before that, it would have been in the mid '70s when sex was portrayed as something yeah. that could be something you could enjoy and get away with, or at least portrayed at all. I mean, yeah. if you go, if you continue to go on through the Oscar years and look at Best Picture, it just starts to clean up and really, really clean up, big time. The English Patient has a lot of sex, um, but you know, not really anything like Fatal Attraction, which is sex out of wedlock. Um, the woman is the aggressor. They're agreeing to have a casual encounter. You know, they're having sex on the sink. And of all of Adrian Lyne's films, including Nine and a Half Weeks, um, I would say Fatal Attraction is probably the most graphic. You know, Nine and a Half Weeks is a pretty sexy movie. But mm-hmm. um, but Fatal Attraction, no you know, has, has really graphic sex. It's just interesting to note the, the change if you, if you look at the Oscar um, Best Picture nominees after this. And that's, that reflected movies in general. I think one of the exceptions to that rule, and I think it, it it wouldn't have made a blip in Oscars Oscars radar, but um, sex-wise, Basic Instinct is the only one I can think of that that went there, and that was another European. It wasn't an American an American director, and again, it was Michael Douglas, oddly. Yeah, that kind of became a thing with Michael Douglas, you know. 
Um, it was Basic Instinct this year? No, it was oh, okay. a few years after, but it, 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 it seemed like a direct antecedent to me of Fatal Attraction. Not, not just because of Michael Douglas, but um, because of the sex and because of the thriller aspect and sex kills ideas and things right, like that. Right. Yeah, just scanning over the, the Best Picture nominees for the next few years after 1987, not only is there sort of a lack of eroticism and a lack of sex, but they're so almost sexless. They're, yeah. almost, uh, they're almost determined to be sexless. Right. I know. It's really weird. And that's, that's what the one weird thing about you know tv compared to movies now is you you really can only see the sex and and on tv you've been listening to episode 40 of oscar podcast with craig kennedy from livingincinema.com and ryan adams and sasha stone from awardsdaily.com you can follow us on twitter at oscar podcast